everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And let's start off, as we usually do, with a little bit of news from the past week and a couple stories I wanted to draw your attention to. Um, first of all, um, you may have heard uh, that there was a, well, purported massive iCloud account breach. Uh, some hackers are telling Apple that they have access to some 600 million uh, iCloud accounts and uh, currently holding those for ransom. Now, originally, the people looking at this were kind of saying that we don't think this is probably real. Uh, potentially, these passwords are from a long time ago, so they're maybe been updated. This is from a breach from a long time ago. Apple was saying that they didn't know of any direct breach, so maybe it was some sort of a third-party thing. Uh, in the meantime, however, um, some people have taken some of the, the credentials that were in this list and tested them out and found out that they worked. So we have to take this seriously. We don't know if all if they really have 600 million accounts and we don't know if they're all still valid. But at this point, I think we should assume that it's a possibility. Um, and you've got some time to do some things because while the, I guess while the ransom is out there, they haven't released them yet. So first and foremost... Uh, change your iCloud password. Um, so this should be easy to do. Uh, you should be using a password manager. So you should be able to create a really unique and strong and long uh, password for your iCloud account, one that you do not have to remember because your password manager remembers it for you. Um, if you're not in that situation, I highly recommend that you look at something like LastPass. Uh, we will talk about that, I'm sure, in future future episodes. LastPass is... My favorite password manager, um, they all have pros and cons, um, but I think for most people, uh, LastPass it makes the right trade-off between security and convenience. Uh, you could be more secure, but it's a lot less convenient, and if it's a lot less convenient, I know that most people just won't do it. So you know, given that, um, I think LastPass strikes the, the best balance. They are very good at um, keeping their software up to date. Uh, I would uh, give them a look, and uh, if you haven't started using a password manager, that is definitely where I would start. Um, the other thing, you know, if you're not using a password manager, and this is why you need a password manager, if you use that same password, your iCloud password, on some other account, then if the hackers have your iCloud password, then they also have the password to whatever these other accounts are. And that's why you really want to make sure that you use a unique password for every single website. And because that is beyond human capability, because I don't know about you, but I've got hundreds of passwords. Um, I'm sure most of you have at least dozens. Uh, it's just not possible for the human brain to, to retain that many strong, long, unique passwords. Uh, truly random passwords. We're talking like, you know, with the special characters and up and down case and numbers and all that kind of stuff. Pure gibberish. Uh, and that's where password managers shine. So you definitely need to have a look at LastPass and you need to uh, change your iCloud password, have your password manager generate it if possible and remember it for you. If, like I said, for some reason you were using a password somewhere else, make sure you change uh, the password on those sites as well. Okay, the other thing that I highly recommend that you do, and not just for your iCloud account, but for all accounts for which this is possible, certainly anything that's anywhere near important, and uh, by important, I mean financial and shopping, obviously, um, anything that I would have your credit card information or your financial information, but also your social media and your email accounts. Uh, those are also very important 
because hackers can use those to get at many other things or to trick your friends into doing things that they shouldn't be doing uh, by impersonating you. So um, for all of those accounts in particular, make sure you've got long, strong, unique passwords from your password manager. And also turn on two-factor authentication. So two-factor authentication means that you need not only your password to get in, but you need something else, something you have. So password is something you know, and then you need um, something you have, usually your smartphone, uh, because it, they, they will send you a one-time PIN code uh, either via SMS, uh, text message to your phone, or they will send it, um, they use a special app like Google Authenticator, um, which keeps a, which generates a rolling PIN code every, I think it's 30 or 60 seconds. And you go to that app and you enter the current PIN code. So now you need two things to get into your account. So even if the hackers did have your password, they would still not have access to your cell phone to get this PIN code to finally get in. And most of the two-factor authentication systems uh, will say that you can you know, trust this computer. Uh, so if you're doing it from home, you don't have to do this every single time. So it will recognize that you're doing it from the same place as before, and they will trust that that is a secure location, uh, and they will not challenge you for your PIN uh, for the two-factor authentication the second time. Uh, sometimes it's for a period of time. Sometimes it's, you can tell it to trust you for 30 days or 60 days or something like that. Uh, but it's it, the inconvenience for any individual computer should should be small. But for uh, a hacker who gets your password and tries to log in from some computer that the system doesn't recognize, they will get challenged and say, okay, great, you've got the password, that's good. Now you also need to give me this uh, PIN code. Go ahead and give me that PIN code. And when they can't, they won't be able to get into your account. So that's where two-factor authentication comes in. And uh, one thing to look at in particular with iCloud is they had an older system that they called two-factor verification, uh, which is different than two-step authentication um, and not quite as secure. So uh, if you do a Google search on a switch, on, the, on this phrase, use this phrase, switch from two-step verification to two-step authentication. If you search on that, you should get an, uh, an Apple document that tells you how to change from the old method to the new method, which is more secure. They're both better than nothing. Um, but I would recommend switching to the new, uh, the newer, more secure two-step authentication with iCloud. So that is the, uh, the news on iCloud. I uh, definitely recommend that you uh, go out and change your passwords and set up two-factor authentication for that. Now, the other thing I want to talk about is a little, little more dry, maybe seem a little more boring, but is extremely important. Um, last week, um, the Senate voted to pass, and it's kind of weird language, but it's a Congressional Review Act, or a CRA, uh, and they are using this to repeal some FCC privacy rules that were put in place um, last year. Some very good privacy rules. Uh, the Senate has already passed it. It's going to the House next week, um, and this is really bad for consumers. I, I honestly don't know how you justify this, but... The FCC had put in some put in place some privacy rules, and with this um, CRA, basically they're going to be able to shut down the FCC from being able to not only enforce these privacy rules, but to make any more privacy rules in the future. And it's it's just bad. So just let me just give you a taste of what this means. And 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 this comes from an article written by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, which is my, uh, I've got a guest today from the EFF for the interview, which is a fantastic interview. So that'll be coming up right after the news. Um, and in this article, they talk about what they call five creepy things that you might have to worry about should this, um, this measure be passed and these privacy rules stricken down. So the least, the least of which the least creepy thing is that 
now your internet service provider, including your cell phone providers, because AT&T and Verizon and Sprint, they're, they're internet service providers as well, right? Because you use your smartphones to surf the web. So it's not just your home internet service provider that we're talking about here. We're also talking about your mobile phone service provider, internet service provider as well. Uh, now, with these privacy laws stricken down, they will once again be able to monitor your uh, your surfing habits and, and your, your personal data and sell that to marketers, which is, you know, that's bad enough that now we're in, in the past, they've also done things like hijacking web searches so that they look at what you're searching for in a web browser. Um, and you're searching for cars. Well, maybe somebody has come along and paid them and said, Hey, when someone searched for cars, I want you to directly send them to my, you know, used car website. And, and they've done this in some cases in the past. So instead of getting your search results, they take you straight to somebody who paid them to intercept that search and take them to your website. Um, they can also start snooping through your traffic, looking at things that you're saying and doing and websites you're going to and start inserting advertisements based on your, your browsing habits and your web traffic. Worse yet, number two on their five creepy things, uh, they may pre-install software on your phone that tracks everywhere you go, all the apps that you use, all the websites that you visit, and report this information back. Now, some of the things we talked about before all count on your web traffic being unencrypted. And a lot of things you do on the web, unfortunately, today still are unencrypted. So they can see uh, the traffic that's going back and forth between you and the websites you're visiting on in some cases. If there's not that little lock, if it's not HTTPS, um, unless it's if it's HTTPS, in most cases, they can't look into the communications between you and that website. But if they put stuff on your phone, this is, they're looking at what you're doing prior to you going to the website. This is before the encryption even happens. So they are, they're right there on your phone, looking at everything you're doing on your phone and can figure out uh, everything. And so, and again, they can sell that data, which is, I just think horrid. And then finally, and this is something that AT&T and Verizon both got caught doing a couple of years ago. Um, they decided that they wanted to be able to track everything you did on the web. So they, what they would do is they would, they would insert these completely, completely undetectable and completely undeletable tracking cookies in everything that you did. So you're using their internet service. So you're, you're sending your request to them and then they are turning around and sending that request off to the internet. That kind of puts them in the middle. And because of that position, they can do things to your web traffic that you can't see or control. And they were putting these unique identifiers on everybody's web traffic and then turning around and selling that information to other people. Uh, so even if they weren't selling it to you, that cookie was always there. And other track, other sites that were trying to track you could still see that information. And if they could figure out that that number belonged to you, then they could track you even without that being sold by Verizon and AT&T. So what do you do about it? Well, the EFF has our backs. They are out there fighting the good fight for us constantly. I cannot recommend um, them highly enough. Um, if if, if you do nothing else and you want to get out there and do something about fighting for all of our rights, just send these guys some money because EFF is doing all the right things. But they also do some really other cool things too. If you go to act.eff.org, that's act.eff.org, uh, I think the top thing on there right now is this whole bit about privacy in the CRA. And it will tell you, it will help you get in touch with all of your representatives in Congress. You enter your name, your uh, your phone number, and your zip code. They will look up your, th your three representatives, that is your two senators and your congressman, congressperson. 
and they will place a call on your behalf to them. You just stay on the line. They place the call for you. You talk to them, and they give you a little blurb about what you need to make sure you say about what you support or want to make sure that the, that your representative supports or doesn't support. Uh, and then you say that to them. They hang up. They say, thank you. Now we're going to call your next representative. They actually walk through all of this for you. It could not be easier. So uh, check that out, act.eff.org, uh, and go out there and contact your representatives and let them know that we cannot have this. And speaking of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, I've got a wonderful guest today named Adam Schwartz. He's a senior lawyer at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and we're going to be talking today about a rather surprising and honestly worrying increase in the amount and type of border searches that are happening um, when you're coming back into the U.S., whether you're a U.S. citizen or not. Um, You'd think that as a U.S. citizen that you would have your first, fourth, and fifth amendment rights fully intact at the border, but in honesty, it's a little different when you're coming into the border, even if you are a full U.S. citizen. So anyway, let's uh, get into this interview with uh, Adam Schwartz. We are excited indeed to be celebrating our one-year anniversary here at America Out Loud. And we could not have done it without you. Well, in short order, we've become one of the fastest-growing podcast and talk radio networks in the world. For all the latest news, entertainment, your blogging, and now web TV, as we celebrate our one-year anniversary here, and we'll see you back at AmericaOutloud.com. Well, there are thousands of nutrition supplements out there. So how do you choose? Well, I believe you choose by the impact it has on your body. For instance, sleeping better at night, having more energy during the day, less anxieties, and just feeling better overall. After taking Healthy Cell for just three weeks, it about changed my life. So much that I asked the company for a special deal for you. Instead of $110 plus shipping, you pay just $79.99 for the monthly plan plus free shipping. Just go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, or click the banner on the homepage of AmericaOutloud.com. Take it from me, Malcolm Outloud. This is a game changer. HealthyCell.com. Hello, everybody, and uh, we've got a very special guest today, as promised. Uh, we've got Adam Schwartz here. He's a senior staff attorney at Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, he's also, I guess, a co-author of a new guide, uh, the new update to the guide called Digital Privacy at the U.S. Border, Protecting the Data on Your Devices and in the Cloud, uh, updated from a 2011 version. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. I've been really looking forward to this because I... I think it's such a crucial issue, and it seems to be getting worse. Um, in fact, and uh, starting off with the fact that you lead your document off with, um, the U.S. government reported a five-fold increase in the number of electronic media searches at the border in a single year, uh, from 4,700-some in 2015 up to almost 24,000 in 2016, which is, you know, <laughs> obviously a huge increase. Uh, now, I have read somewhere else that that still only accounts for about one one-hundredth of one percent of all international arrivals, but nevertheless... Um, it's, it's stunning to me that it's gone up, uh, so much. So with that kind of a setup, tell us a little, little bit about this guide, uh, why you felt the need to update it and, uh, what's going on right now. 
So the technology has radically changed. It used to be that our most intimate information was in our desks or safety deposit boxes, but now it's like we're carrying all of the desks and all the safety deposit boxes that we've ever had with us inside our phones. And at least in the United States, the norm is that the government can't get into your phone without getting a warrant from a judge based on probable cause. But the U.S. border has kind of turned into the the end run around those protections. So now border agents um, with no suspicion at all can open up our devices and uh, see what's inside. And that is uh, from the perspective of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and many other privacy advocates, a really um, catastrophic invasion of our privacy. I would have to agree. So. Why is the border different? Why why do my rights and we'll talk about the various types of citizenship and and whatever that might that the gray areas that might be different. But for just for regular U.S. citizens, if I go across the border, come back, why are my rights any different at the border than they are within the border? Yeah, for about a century, the U.S. courts have ruled that uh, people at the U.S. border have less privacy and the government has more power because of the government's self-interest in uh, ensuring that dangerous things and dangerous people don't enter the country. And so, for example, they can uh, go through our bags and they can disassemble our gas tanks and they can hold us for a few hours while they ask a bunch of intrusive questions. These are things they couldn't do um, if they stopped us on a street corner or driving down a highway, uh, but they can at the border. And uh, we don't like that, but as privacy advocates, we say there's a radical difference between um, poking around inside our bags where there is a finite amount of information as opposed to poking around inside our cell phones and our laptops where there is orders of magnitude more information. Yes, absolutely. And I would have to think, I mean, personally, obviously, I'm not a lawyer, but you are. So I would think that there's a difference between I, uh, ostensibly most of the stuff was for I don't want somebody bringing in bomb making materials, drugs, um, bio agents, um, even just foreign plants or things like that. Th physical things that I might have that might be dangerous. It's not like even, you know, 30 years from now, they said, OK, show us your library reading list. Which is, which is to me more along the lines of the kind of things you would have in your phone, your social media that, you know, they're not asking you to show all your correspondence. The, those weren't the things that they were deeming threatening, the, th the kind of things that a border search would catch. This seems like a fundamentally different sort of thing that they're searching for. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, what the courts have said in the U.S is that ordinarily the government has to get a warrant, but there are a small number of exceptions uh, where they don't, and those exceptions are tethered closely to the a particular government need. So for example, um, you can have a checkpoint to see if everyone is sober while driving, but you can't turn that checkpoint into a general search for crime. And likewise, uh, you might have um, a, um, a softening of the warrant requirement at the border in order to keep uh, bombs and people who plan to detonate bombs out of the country. But at the point where you are looking through people's phones at their last 10 emails and their last 10 purchases and um, everyone that they've ever sent a text message to, you are doing something entirely different um, and it is no longer tethered to the original um, interest that justified um, the uh, the loosening of the rules of the border. 
So in your mind, what accounts for this apparently mass, massive increase? First of all, that statistic sounds alarming. Is First of all, is it? And second, what do you think accounts for this increase? And do you foresee it getting worse or better as, as we move forward? Yeah, uh, we don't know as much as we would like to about the number of these device searches. Here is everything we know. Um, in about 2010 and 2011, there were about 5,000 a year. We know that through a FOIA, that the a Freedom of Information Act request that the American Civil Liberties Union sent to the Customs Service. And then uh, there was also 5,000 in the year 2015. We know that from a media report um, about a month ago. Then it jumped fivefold uh, to approximately 25,000 in the year 2016. So that was in the final year of the Obama administration. It's unclear uh, why that happened. And we know it has jumped even more in the early uh, period of the Trump presidency. Um, the government recently um, disclosed, and this was reported um, last week, that in February of 2017, there were 5,000 uh, border device searches, uh, which put them you know, uh, online at that rate to more than 100,000 in the year 2017. Um, so, and that's a tenfold increase compared to where we were in uh, two years earlier, uh, 2015. So uh, this is, I would say, a growing menace in terms of um, the number of people this is happening to. I would add uh, two uh, linked causes for concern. Number one, um, the technology in the hands of the border agents to do this is more and more powerful. So mm -hmm. there's a tool called Celebrite where they can plug it into your phone and image it, meaning copy everything. And they can get the information you think you've deleted, which has ended up in unallocated space. And if they want to, they can um, copy stuff, not just that's in your device, but also that you are storing in the cloud. Number two, uh, there is a proposal from the president to the Congress, subject, of course, to um, Congress's power over the purse, to greatly expand the number of border agents. And so when you have uh, more border agents with more powerful um, border device search technology in their hands, uh, we can only fear that um, the tenfold increase in the number of border device searches we've seen in the last two years is going to continue. Now, are they, are they claiming, and they being, I guess since we don't really know why this is happening, but is there is there any notion that there's some known threat that we are that we are that we are trying to respond to, or do we just have no clue at this point what's what why these uh, increases have, have happened? Are they are they claiming any reason why these things have happened? Um, I do not know the government's explanation of uh, what is happening. Um, we do know anecdotally by talking to travelers or by reading the accounts of travelers that they seem to be looking at all kinds of information inside people's phones. Um, and, uh, you know, whether or not they're trying to discover um, child pornography, uh, maybe they're trying to discover, um, you know, messages that would indicate um, a hostile intent. You know, maybe that's what they're doing, but we don't really know um, what their objectives are. Wow. Okay. So and you touched on this, and I wanted to talk about it. What? What do, you, do we know of any cases where, when they are taking these phones, my guess is that they are they can take they can seize the phones for any amount of time they wish. They can take them into a back room where you can't see what they're doing. Um, they have and Celebrite, I believe, was the company that uh, we believe was behind the FBI uh, getting into the iPhone at, at the San Bernardino case, I believe. Do we know for modern devices, if, if are they capable of taking it out of the room and with this tool, actually even on an iPhone that's fully hard disk encrypted, 
to pull everything off and actually get past the encryption or are they storing the encrypted uh, uh, the encrypted information with hopes of maybe someday cracking it? Yeah, th those are great questions, and um, we, we really can uh, only speculate. Um, you know, my understanding is that if you have a, um, a a recently purchased device and you update it with all of the um, security patches, and you've got a recent operating system, that there is a high likelihood that no one, um, including the government, um, can crack your device. Um, Although, as you say, in San Bernardino, they did seem to um, make extraordinary efforts and spend an extraordinary amount of money um, to try to crack um, the, the iPhone from the San Bernardino um, you know, uh, terrorists. Um, so, so at EFF, you know, uh, we think the most important thing that everyone can do all the time is, uh, is encrypt and uh, keep their encryption uh, updated with all the patches, and that most of the time that will be strong protection, although, again, in extraordinary cases, um, with, with a, which is not the garden variety border crossing, um, the government may be able to crack it. Yes, and uh, that is a point I definitely want to make, and I tried to harp on in the, in the podcast, is that the math is sound. Uh, all, the, all the encryption experts uh, agree that the current math is sound. It's been highly vetted. Uh, the the devil's always in the details, which usually means the implementation, uh, where they find the cracks in the system or implementation errors. Um, so, but if, if things are properly encrypted, you're in good shape. Uh, and we will talk about some of these mitigation things I, uh, at the end when we kind of go through, you know, uh, what we can do. Um, so let, let's ask a simple question. So, and this may seem ridiculously simple, but I know that it's not. How what is the border where where do they have their authority because for instance i know in some cases in some countries we've made arrangements where some of these checks are actually done prior to even flying into the country i believe right so i i can describe how the u.s government conceives of it and and by the way that applies to everything i'm saying i, I know less about what foreign governments are doing so the u.s government um uh, and the courts think of the border as um uh, all of the airports and seaports and land crossings where you, um, you know, enter the United States. Um, as well, there are um, a dozen or so uh, countries that we have um, pre-clearance stations with. So if you are flying, let's say, from um, uh, Toronto, Canada to the United States, uh, you would go through U.S. Customs um, at the Toronto airport, and um, when you get off the airplane inside the United States, you wouldn't have to go through uh, customs again. There's another dozen or so countries that have that. In addition, um, within 100 miles of the border inside the United States, um, there are some special powers of border agents, so they can set up fixed checkpoints um, and stop every car in order to explore whether or not the persons in the car are, um, you know, bringing in drugs and or um, undocumented immigrants. However, um, even with those expanded powers on the interior in this kind of this hundred mile zone, uh, they can't search anything without a probable cause. So um, that, that presumably would include devices. So, so my concern here, which is the border device searches, is at the um, the, the airports, seaports, and uh, land ports of entry, um, and, and not also in this 100-mile uh, interior zone. All right, great. And then the reason I ask is I know that at some point we're going to talk about um, uh, the, the the guide you put out, which is fantastic, by the way. Um, very, uh, very, very good. T breaks it down into basically three things. Before the trip, at the border, 
and after the trip. And if you don't know where the border is, <laughs> you can't plan properly for what to do at the border and prior to the border. So um, let's talk about what triggers, what is likely to trigger an inspection? Do we do we have a feel for that? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone who gets off of a uh, or everyone who enters the United States at one of these, um, you know, border entries, um, they're going to go through a um, generic uh, general screening through a customs officer where you're going to present your passport and they might ask you some questions. Um, a subset of those people get sent to what's called secondary screening, where they're going to look through your bags and ask you more questions. And then a subset of those people are going to get the border device search. Um, and what most typically happens is the agent says, um, can you um, unlock your device for me? Um, sometimes they'll ask you to tell your password. Obviously, it's um, much better. If you're going to um, uh, give them anything, it's much better for you to unlock it yourself because then they don't have your password. Um, and uh, based on anecdotal reports, um, if you unlock it, they're going to um, take it out of your site for some period of time and then bring it back to you and you won't know what happened. Um, and if you refuse, uh, based on anecdotal reports, they're going to seize your device from you um, and uh, try to crack it without your assistance. Um, and then you won't have your device for a period of months. And as well, um, they may escalate the encounter, for example, um, hold you for a longer period of time or give you a more intensive search of your baggage or whatnot. Um, and at some point um, during this interview, I'm sure you'll be interested in talking about the, the ways that this um, implicates different kinds of travelers based on mm -hmm. their immigration status. Yes. Yes. In fact, let's go ahead and talk about that. So um, one thing, uh, how does it I know there are gray, there are even gradations within uh, the U.S. There's there's U.S. citizens by birth, U.S. citizens that were naturalized, uh, green card permanent resident hold uh, green card holders permanent residents, uh, valid visa holders, and of course um, <laughs> lowest on the lowest on the totem pole will just be visitors. Um, but so let's talk about the gradations there and and how your rights may differ and how you may have to approach this differently depending on what your status is. Yeah, I mean the, the EFF, the, the overall construct we have is is um, risk factor analysis, where everybody has to think about all the factors that uh, affect them, and we can drill into them, and they include things like how sensitive it is your data, and um, you know have you backed up your data. Um, but one of the the major factors in this risk as assessment matrix is your immigration and citizenship status. Um, and we kind of uh, sort things into three categories. Um, one is people who are citizens. And um, as far as I know, people who are, are treated the same, whether they're um, or should be treated the same, whether they're U.S. born um, or naturalized citizens, uh, either way, you have a right to enter your country. Um, and while the agent, you know, so if you refuse to unlock your device, the agents might take your device and the agents might escalate the encounter. And, uh, but in the end, they're going to let you enter the country. Um, at the other end of the spectrum are um, people who are visiting, um, either under a visa uh, or under a visa waiver program or, or whatever the, um, the system is. Um, and if you um, are visiting, then you can be bounced to the border. So there have been, uh, you know, one, one famous example, for example, there's a, a Canadian journalist uh, named Ou, um, his, his last name is OU, and he was trying to enter the United States to do some journalism, and border agents asked him to unlock his phone, and he said no, and they said that that could affect the decision whether to admit him, and he persisted in saying no, and then they didn't admit him, and uh, they took his phones and, and gave them back to him, and it, it appeared to him that the phones had been tampered with based on some 
some marks on the phone. So if you're a visitor and you don't unlock, there's every possibility they're going to bounce you. Um, then kind of in the middle area is lawful permanent residents um, who I think have an especially challenging um, decision about whether or not to unlock. If you don't unlock, um, you know, border agents have the power to investigate whether or not there has been a change in your status. Um, so how long was your trip? What did you do while you were abroad? Has the gravity of your life uh, in terms of where you work and where your family is and where you pay taxes shifted abroad? And they can order you to come back to the border to um, justify your continued status as a permanent resident um, before a border agent or before an immigration judge. Um, on the flip side, um, if you do unlock the phone, um, they might look through it and find evidence that calls into question your entitlement to enter the country. Uh, so there was a report published uh, last week of a foreign person who visited Colorado, um, took advantage of legal marijuana in Colorado, took some photographs of the um, product in the legal marijuana stores, went home to their foreign country, then came back to the United States, and when they presented immigration, consented to um, uh, unlocking of their device, and the border agent found the photographs of the marijuana, in, uh, the legal dispensary in Colorado, and bounced them on the grounds that this was a violation of uh, U.S. law. So it's really a no-win situation. If you unlock, they might find evidence that affects your status. And if you don't unlock, they might retaliate by, um, you know, digging deeper into your continued status. Wow. So let's talk about that. So I, one, the, the, the guide talks about how to approach the refusal. Uh, and we'll, again, we've got some mitigation techniques we'll talk at the end. But let's say you've got your regular devices. It's got all your social media accounts on it. It's got your email. It's got Dropbox. It's got access to your entire digital life, which if it's anything like mine is damn near everything. So you obviously need to be thinking about this before you come to the border, before you take your trip. You kind of, and this is what Honestly, it just makes me sad as a U.S. as a U.S. citizen. My wife is Canadian, and and so we will be going to Canada every so often to see family and then come back. And I just, you know, it just makes me ill to think that I have to even go through this process. But so now I'm thinking in my head, you know, what do I bring? What do, do you know? Do I do I wipe my phones? Do I, you know, do do I bring burner phones? Do I what you know? Thinking all these crazy thoughts, and I'm like, oh my god, this is the, the United States of America. I'm talking about. I can't believe that I have to think about this. I'm a U.S. citizen, and yet here I am. So, and but the, but the big thing for everybody, I think, to think about, and is prior to taking this trip, you, I think you kind of need to go through these the, the thought process. What am I going to do if they ask? You know, if you if your answer is just oh, I'll just give my password, I don't care. Then there, you know, then there's hopefully nothing to worry about unless, you know, God forbid something on your social media, like you, like you said, with this other individual, something on there tips them off that, you know, or, you know, irks them and, and makes them give you a hard look or, or whatever. But if you're going to decide if you're kind of in some conscientious fashion, if you're going to say, and we'll, and there are other cases too, for instance, we haven't talked about this yet, but I'd like to also have you address this. What if I'm a business traveler and I've got intellectual property uh, on my, on my device and my devices are not my own. My devices are my business devices. For that matter, what if I'm self-employed? Does that does that matter? Uh, does it does it have equal status to me being an employee at a large U.S. company with uh, trade secrets, um, or does it not qualify? And then finally, journalist. Um, what constitutes a journalist? How do I prove that I'm a journalist? Is that worth even attempting? And of course, just average U.S. citizen. I guess that's probably the most common case. So. I rattled off a lot of questions there, all kind of packed together, but kind of walk through those ver the various scenarios with me and, and 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 how we should approach this and think about it prior to our trip. 
Yeah, I think that um, before you travel, uh, you need to think about the whole thing holistically. You know, what can you do to prepare yourself before you travel? What will you do um, at the border if they ask you to unlock? And you have to think about your your risk assessment factors. And a big part of risk assessment is um, what is it you have in your devices. Um, for some people, it's especially sensitive. Um, if you're a professional whose job it is to protect the confidentiality of other people, you know, if you're a doctor with your emails from your patients, if you're a lawyer with emails from your clients, if you're a journalist with emails from your um, you know confidential informants. If you are a business person uh, carrying your boss's trade secrets, you know you have ethical obligations uh, to keep all of this stuff secret. And um, we think that the the policies, such as they are, that the the border guards have to um, defer a little bit to this privacy, are, are woefully inadequate. Um, and so, uh, you, I think travelers um, should consider whether they can leave some of this behind. Um, so, for example, travelers might be able to um, use a Chromebook um, that has nothing on it but what they strictly need for their trip. Uh, or they might have a burner phone um, that is good for you know, communications but doesn't have you know, everything they've bought off of the Internet, um, you know, one, one, one toggle of the, of the iPhone away. Um, for travelers who um, can't carry less, um, it's imperative that they use strong encryption and, uh, you know, screen locks are good, but strong encryption is better and to use strong passwords. You know, there's, there's, um, a published, uh, judicial opinion where the border agent successfully guessed that the, uh, telephone's password was the traveler's birthday. <laughs> um, so, so you, you need to use, and there, there's, uh, software that can uh, give you, um, long passwords that are impossible to predict, but easy to remember. Um, it's really important for travelers to turn their device off um, before they get to uh, customs because um, there are um, attacks that um, um, adversaries can use against your device that are easier if it is already on and harder if it's turned off. And um, you really need to know before you get there what you're going to say when they say, you know, you need to unlock your device for me. Um, are you going to comply or are you going to refuse? Because that's a really tough decision, and people don't make good decisions when they're when they're flustered in the heat of the moment. Yeah, for sure. And I, the article or the, or the guide that you published was very specific about some, about how you even how you refuse. So, it, it, for instance, it, it mentioned, "Are just at, when they say unlock your device, respond with is this a request or is this a command?" And if it's a command, you can say, I, I want to note for the record that I uh, object to this, but I'm going to do it um, or not, depending on what your case may be. Because the notion being, I guess, after the fact, if you wanted to, for instance, sue them, the, it gets really hairy when you're trying to determine whether or not you gave consent. Yeah, that, that's all absolutely correct. Um, what protections the Fourth Amendment gives to the privacy of people in the country, including travelers entering the country, um, and there are many protections, um, they all go out the window as soon as a person consents. So if the police come to your door and say, pretty please, can we come inside and look through your sock drawer? And you say, sure, then you've consented, and it doesn't matter that they don't have a warrant. Uh, and so a um, common police tactic is to um, obtain consent because that ends any possible legal challenge. Now, we think at the EFF that the context of the border is inherently coercive. You know, you're in an alien environment that you can't walk out of and you're dealing with agents who you know, are wearing uniforms and are 
party and you're exhausted after a foreign trip and you might be missing a flight and you want to get home to your family. Uh, we think when an agent says, you know, can you open your day for me, that if you comply, it's inherently coercive and there's, so there's no consent. Um, that said, you know, in order to um, best protect yourself so that you can bring a challenge later if you want to, um, if the agent says, you know, can you open your device, you should ask whether they're ordering you or um, asking you. And if they're asking you, then you can politely say, you know, no, I'm not going to. And if they order you, um, you have to decide whether or not to comply. You know, if, if you don't comply and you're a U.S. citizen, they might take your device, but you're still going to go home. Um if, if you do comply, it would be good to notify them for the record that you're only complying because they've ordered you and that you're not consenting. You know, whether this will work in court, you know, uh, remains uh, to be adjudicated. But we think that um, people will have the most opportunity to uh, to succeed in bringing a legal challenge if, if they um, make it clear that there's no consent. So let's talk a little bit about this because there's also um, a, quite the continuum when we talk about things like passwords and pins and whatever. So. First of all, I'd like uh, I'd like to address the issue, I'd like you to to address the issue of fingerprint versus pin code. Uh, I know within the United States, it's still not quite settled, but it, it seemed at least for a while until some recent cases, the the the, the way it was broken down was if if it's a thumbprint, they can compel you to to open it. They don't feel that that is uh, breaking the Fifth Amendment, a Fifth Amendment, your right to self incrimination. However, if it's a passcode. So far, it seems like the law has mostly favored that being protected. So there's that. First of all, there's that issue. So should you use a fingerprint versus a pin code? Second, can they? What about other credentials? They can. They can. While you have these other credentials, you could just, for instance, uh, not just giving your phone credentials. They can maybe see what you've done recently on your social media accounts. They could, of course, ask you for your credentials for your social media account so they could see everything, uh, including uh, any any accounts for that matter, including your password manager. Uh, what do you <laughs> can they do that? And what what should you do in those particular cases? Yeah, I, I think you, you've asked uh, two questions and I'll, I'll address them both. The, the first is the um, kind of the computer security advantages and disadvantages of um, a password versus a, a fingerprint lock or other biometric. Um, the advice that we are giving is that people should not rely solely on a biometric to lock their phone. Um, passwords are much stronger. And, and that's true for a few reasons. Um, number one, um, a overzealous police official might press your finger against your device and unlock it you know, against your will. And in fact, there's at least one occasion that a judge in the United States has granted a warrant to police, not just to search a home, but uh, to um, press the fingers of any person they find in the home against any devices they find in the home. Hmm. Um, so, so that is a security weakness. Um, number two, um, police are beginning to develop technology that can take a fingerprint that is in storage in a government database and use it to unlock a device. Um, number three, as you were saying, there is some developing um, legal decisions regarding um, the Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate yourself and how that applies to uh, computer passwords and uh, fingerprint locks. And the, the law is very much in flux, and there are cases going going kind of every which way. But uh, and I could drill down further into that if you want. But um, the, the law so far has been more protective of the password than of the fingerprint. 
on the theory that the password is in your head um, and um, the Fifth Amendment is concerned with with testimony, um, meaning you know things that you might say about yourself um, through through word or deed, whereas your fingerprint is is not inside your head. It's not the products of your mind. Uh, so for all those reasons, we are urging people not to rely just on a biometric password, um, but to also have, um, excuse me, a biometric key, but also to have a password. And by the way, we're, we're strong advocates of what, what is commonly called two-factor yes. authentication. So, you know, if you can have the password and the code uh, or the, the password and the fingerprint, that's even better. But uh, if you're going to only have one, use a password and, and not the fingerprint. Well, before you answer the second the part issue, of the question, wait, before I ask the yeah. second part, let me let me stop you right there because I was going to bring up two factor. But now, since you brought it up, let me ask legally, what's the what's the status of the two factor? Because if they can compel me, if they can compel me to give my credentials, my login and password, why can't they also just compel me to use my two factor authentication app to get the pin code as well? Is that, is it fall under the same thing or is it, does that somehow actually give you some extra layer of protection? I think the, the sense in which I'm describing it, it's about, uh, the, the practical, um, um, self-defense, um, a border agent might be able to, um, forcibly put your hand on your device or take a print out of a database and use it against your device, um, but they can't get the password out of your head uh, unless you, you know, unless you tell it to them. All right, and th so that would apply to the two factor as well, is what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, just to be clear, when I say two factor, what I mean to be saying is that um, any kind of account you have, if it's good to have. Um, I mean, there's, there's essentially three different things. There's a, a, a part of you, like your biometrics. There's something you have, like your bank um, uh, account plastic card. And there's something you know, uh, such as a password. Um, and so, um, you know, there's all kinds of accounts we might sign into where um, it's not enough to have your password. Um, they want to send you a text message or an email to the phone you're carrying. That's the thing you have, where you've also got to put in that unique once-only number. And so... Um, any time where there's kind of two different um, uh, doors that the adversary has to pass through to get your stuff, you know, that's two-factor authentication. So what I mean to be saying is that um, there's nothing wrong with using a thumbprint to protect your phone if you're also using um, the password. Okay. All right. Well, actually, we're, we're winding down. Let's let's talk a little bit about mitigation and uh, techniques, things you could do. Um, and we talked about, you know, we've kind of mentioned a few of them as we've gone along here, but let's a little more formally address this uh, into the before the trip and at the border. And of course, uh, after the trip, if you felt that something has gone awry and, and you wish to make a complaint, um, walk, walk us through some of the, some of your, some of the advice that's in the guide. What we talked about burner phones, we talked about Chromebooks. And as you're talking about this, a question that jumps on my head is, doesn't this make you more sus suspicious? If you're like, if you have a, an obvious burner phone or a Chromebook or something like that, is that more likely to get you triggered? You know, th that's a really great question, and, and we talk about that in our report. I think that um, there is the danger of kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where it is precisely the counter-surveillance tactics that you use that uh, draw the attention of the guards and end up subjecting you to more surveillance. Um, so, for example, we tell people how to do a, a factory reset or, you know, a, a complete wipe of everything on their devices, but that's an unusual thing to do. And kind of the, the more off the beaten path you go, 
with extraordinary, um, you know, privacy tactics, the more border agents might ask what's going on. On the other hand, we think in this day and age, um, you know, traveling with a, a burner phone because you're scared about losing your ordinary phone, you know, shouldn't be too extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, uh, you know, encryption, you know, strong encryption, strong passwords in this day and age are are pretty standard. There is one issue that I, I, I want to emphasize, and you, 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 were, you were getting to this earlier, which is um, social media. Um, people who are planning to unlock if they are ordered to do so should consider um, signing out of or even removing um, their social media accounts and browsers because once an agent has your unlocked phone, if your browser is open, they can uh, go to it and see your last um you know, search history or your, your, your search history. And if your, you know, Facebook account is open, they can go look at your Facebook page, whereas you could close it out. So they would need a different password or even, you know, remove the app. Um, one thing I want to emphasize is that while, um, all manner of travelers have been asked for their social media, um, uh, handles, you know, what is the name of your account? Um, we are not yet aware, um, of an agent asking anybody for their social media um, login mm. credentials. Okay. Um, there is a proposal um, in the, that's been cooking for months in the White House to maybe do that to certain foreign travelers. And of course, we, would, we oppose that. We've already signed letters in opposition, um, among other reasons, because once it starts with foreign travelers, it will spread to, to U.S. travelers as well, both entering the United States and what foreign governments will do in retaliation to, to U.S. travelers. But as far as we know to date, um, while agents have used devices to look at people's social media content um, just because the app is open. And while agents have demanded that people give them their social media handles, we are not yet aware of agents demanding that people give them their social media login credentials. Okay. That's, that's comforting. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that, that's kind of the, the last piece of the puzzle, which they have not um, you know, demanded and we hope they won't. Yeah. All right. So just a little recap here at the end. So basically before the trip, you know, first of all, most of us have nothing to hide. And, and you know, I don't want to, I'm usually the person who's campaigning against lighting your hair on fire. And, and a lot of the thing, a lot of the things I see in the media are overhyped and I don't want to become one of those people. But I, I think that certainly from a legal standpoint and from a precedent standpoint, this is extremely important. And so we should all be thinking about this and be ready for this when it happens. Uh, and, and so there's things you, first of all, prepare emotionally. Uh, one thing we haven't covered yet that I wanted to touch on is uh, one of the points you make in the guide is make sure at the border that you are friendly, that you are complicit or not complicit, compliant. You're, you're not resisting physically and certainly in, in any way. And that your that your, your attitude is probably, and certainly do not lie. Um, actually, let me take a break and address that real quick if you would. Yeah, I mean, we, we agree that, you know, whether or not you prepare by using encryption and whether or not you, you know, refuse to comply with a request, that's one thing. Just another set of things are just about basic safety at the border. You know, be polite. Don't lie. Um, you know, if, if they're getting emotional, try not to get emotional because uh, that's just going to get them get them further riled up. The lying is really important because there are federal crimes on, on the books against Right. Uh, lying to police officers and purposely hiding information from police officers. And government takes a very broad definition of, of what those laws mean. And so um, we, we do not encourage people to 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 hide information inside their devices. Um, we, we do think that um, it's possible to be polite and tell the truth and also practice uh, good surveillance self-defense. Right. So 
you know, know what, know what you're going to do when they ask the question before you go, make sure you minimize the amount of data that you have with you and the devices you have with you. Uh, when you get to the border, be prepared to, uh, take the time and be polite. Now, what, what should we, what should we do? Or if we go through this process, we do, we've done the best we can. Someone did challenge us. There was something went down that we didn't like. Uh, now we're home. What, what do we do if, if we want to pursue something, uh, after the fact? Yeah, I think the first thing that people should do is to contact the EFF. And so if you, um, I think it's borders at EFF.org, um, we'll hook you up with our team who is, you know, taking a lot of complaints about this. Um, also, people should uh, write down um, as soon as they can what happened when it's fresh in their memory. Also, people should try to identify witnesses. It might have been a traveling companion. It, it might have been strangers that somehow they uh, exchange information with. And people should consider sending a, a Freedom, of Informa Freedom of Information Act request uh, to the government um, to get the government's records of uh, what happened and why at the um, at the crossing. Sometimes uh, it, the government will share that information and you can see, uh, you know, what the reasoning was and, and maybe what they did with your device after they took it out of your site. Okay. Excellent. That's great advice. Uh, Adam, it's been fantastic talking to you. This is a really important subject and... Um, uh, you know, you you guys are fighting the good fight. I've been supporting the EFF for many years, and uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. And uh, any last minute comments you'd like to throw out? Yeah, just you know, uh, our lives are open books once the government uh, can get inside these devices. And and this isn't just you know criminals or terrorists. This is every person should fear the government rummaging around our medical history, our financial history, all of our communications, uh, everything that we're reading. Um, and, you know, the Supreme Court has given the very highest protection um, to um, the inside of our devices uh, when it comes to ordinary law enforcement. And we really think that they should do the same thing with uh, border devices, uh, border searches of devices, too. In the meantime, there are actions we can all take to try to uh, protect our privacy. Hopefully the courts and Congress uh, will catch up soon. And I'm really grateful to you for, um, you know, letting me be on your show and, and spread the word. Excellent. Thank you very much, Adam. Glad to have you. Yep. Have a great day. And thank you once again to Adam Schwartz. That was a fantastic interview. Great, great information. Once again, please go check out the Electronic Frontier Foundation's website. Uh, send them some money if you can. Uh, go to the action page where you can uh, make, well, they will help you contact your representatives here in the United States uh, over some of the really important issues that they're fighting for. Check that out for sure. And it's time for the mailbag now. We have time for, I think, one question um, this week. And the first one comes from Steve in Michigan. And he says, he asks, is it safe to e-file my taxes? That's a great question. Obviously, in the United States right now, it's a very timely topic with tax day fast approaching. Um, e-filing is electronic filing. That is where you, instead of you know, printing up and writing out all the various tax forms and by hand and mailing them through the U.S. mail, uh, you actually just go online on your computer and you submit all of those same forms electronically over the internet. And I can definitely understand why that would be something of concern. You know, obviously there's a lot of really juicy info in your taxes, your social security number, your, your name, your address, all this kind of information, the financial information. Uh, is that safe? And the question, uh, the response is yes, it is absolutely safe. So just like online banking and uh, online shopping, uh, when you see that HTTPS, uh, that little lock symbol on your web browser, that means that all of your uh, all of your communications are completely encrypted, and this encryption works, folks. Um, 
nobody between you and the recipient of that information along all the various hops that that your web traffic is going to take across the internet see nothing but gibberish they cannot decode it so just like that filing your e-taxes is uh, filing your taxes electronically is just as safe as doing all these other things banks use this technology all the time uh, and they obviously have a lot more skin in the game than we do in terms of financial risk so don't worry about it uh, if you're filing directly with the irs website or you can also use um, applications like uh, TurboTax or hr blocks tax software uh, either either through their software applications or through their websites. There's a lot, they have a lot of website filing now that is all perfectly safe. Don't worry about it. You might even, you could even think that it's even safer in some ways than sending it through the mail. Um, in the mail, someone, theoretically at least, could open up that mail anywhere along the line and get all that information out of there. Whereas with encrypted web traffic, there's nobody that can crack that stuff between you and them. So, great question. And that does it for another edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Thanks for listening, everybody. Tune in again next week. We'll have some more news. We'll have another great interview. And I will answer more questions from listeners just like you. Send me your questions at Parker at americaoutloud.com. That's C-A-R-E-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R at americaoutloud.com. And I will answer as many as I can at the end of the show. And until then, stay safe out there, everybody. So long. So long.